Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 36 of Yogaland. Today, I'm going to be talking to my husband, Jason Crandall, and he's going to answer your questions. I want to thank you all so much for submitting your questions. We got so many, a few too many to answer in this episode, but we'll continue on working through them in future episodes. And also, there are a few questions that you submitted that are going to turn into their own episode. For example, someone sent me a question about how to start a meditation practice and how to set up for a meditation practice. So I'm working on um, getting a guest for that and just talking through that one as its own episode because I think that's such a great big question and there are a few questions like that. But for today, we're going to talk through some anatomy asana-based questions. Hello there, Jason. Hello. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) I feel like it's been a while. It has been a while. You've been a busy guy. Okay. So the first question is from B-U, spelled B-E-E-U. And her question is such a good one. Traditionally in vinyasa, we hop back to chaturanga. And I've been taught not to hop back to plank pose. Good advice. Anatomically, what are the benefits of hopping back to bent elbows versus plank? I practice bent elbows and try to instruct it as well. But I notice that a lot of students still hop back to plank. I think for me, this is something that is a thing that doesn't necessarily need to be a thing. And I, as a vinyasa teacher, made it a thing for a long time. So let me step back briefly and just say that sometimes teachings get carried on just because they're teachings and we carry them on, not necessarily because they've been thoroughly vetted over time. So you can jump back to plank and you can jump back to chaturanga skillfully and you can jump back to plank and you can jump back to chaturanga unskillfully. I think that there's a certain logic for jumping back to plank that raises a red flag, but ultimately I think that it's manageable. The concern for me is much less shoulders. In fact, I think it's probably less stressful for the shoulder joint to make a little hop back to plank than it is to chaturanga. I think it is potentially more stressful for the lower back to jump back to plank Mm -hmm. than it is chaturanga. Mm -hmm. So with regards to shoulders, let me rule that out. I do not think that a nice, well-executed hop back to plank is worse for the shoulders than a little hop back for chaturanga. I used to feel that, but I just don't have any evidence for it. And understanding more clearly how the ball and socket joint works, that just doesn't make sense. But if you hop back to plank, I can see a situation where the student bows too much down in their lower back in plank as opposed to chaturanga. When you end in plank, think, okay, think about this. When you hop back to plank, you have straight arms. So you are straight arm distance to the floor. When you hop back to chaturanga, you are, you hop back to bent elbow. So you're bent elbow distance to the floor. I can see a scenario where when you jump back to plank, that you are a greater distance from the floor. Your whole body is a greater distance from the floor because the arms are straight. And therefore, people might sink down into the lower back too much. Yeah, there's just something about, I mean, that's always been my, um, the, the 
sensory experience in my body. And I, I'm a little bit lordotic in my lower back. So I already have a, just kind of like a vulnerability to overarch. Yeah. And for me, I've always listened to you say in the past, at least used to instruct not jumping back yeah. to plank. And it, it made sense in terms of the way it felt in my body. It felt like a little too much pressure on my lower back. Yeah. And so I think it can be, I think that it can be. That being said, I think that that can also be remedied. I think that that can be remedied in the same way that you would remedy in it remedy it when you jump to chaturanga which is more abdominal engagement prior to that jump especially abdominal engagement of the transverse abdominus i think the question for her to help her is if she sees students hopping back to planks should she make it clear in her instructions either jump back to chaturanga or yeah jump back to chaturanga or step back to plank or do you think you know, I think that that's okay. I think that it's okay to just have a consistent step back to plank or jump back to chaturanga. But I also want to take it that step further, which is to say that might just be an expedient to educating a room, not a universal truth. Right. And so if you really wanted to break it down at a, like at a workshop or something, yes. you could talk to people about how to hop back either way and figuring out a way that's better for yeah, them. Yeah, and I I guess part of where I just want to be really honest with this and tell you, I hop back to plank all the time. Do you see? I never oh my do. God, yeah. It doesn't because it's because because for me, like the first thing I do is half sun salutations, then I do lunge salutations. Then when I do Surya Namaskar A, honestly, the first Surya Namaskar A or two, I'm still tired. I'm still warming up. And so I will take a really light little hop to plank, pause. And then exhale lower down, mm-hmm. right? And so I just don't, I don't think that we have to take it completely off the table, but as a teaching expedient, mm-hmm. right? Because in we're not in any, in every class going to teach every possible way of doing every possible thing and all the potential bad case scenarios. So I think that hopping back to Chaturanga is the norm and it's okay. And hopping back to Plank I don't think that it is unreasonable or inherently bad, but I think that the lower back needs to be managed a little bit more. But honestly, ultimately, I actually think it's easier on the shoulder socket to to do a little hop back to plank. For sure. Yes. Yeah. But, and I just want to be clear that that's a place that I think that I was mistaken as a teacher is I used to think that it was stressful on the shoulders to hop back to plank. Mm. And we used to all the time actually in, in Rodney's classes over the years, he would have us hop back to down dog. Yeah, you just I love do have that, a actually. hop back to down dog, That's pause, take a breath thing. or two. Yeah, you know. So I don't think we should take it off the table, but the, the, those are my thoughts. Right. I think that's clear. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Okay, the next question is from Naomi at Detroit Yoga Lab. Oh no, <laughs> I know her. Yeah, we do. Okay, this is a great question. I think for so many people, Naomi uh, asks me difficult questions all the time. Oh, I want her to start asking me questions like, "What's your favorite color?" You know, things that are easy to answer. Go ahead. I think that's a really hard one to answer, but that's because I've been hanging out with a four-year-old for so long. Okay, my wrists are so inflexible in the direction of f- flexing the finger set nail side of my hand toward my the top of my forearm. This limits my depth. That's extension. Oh, wait. Is it? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so I think, she, so let's, let's do this. To, um, let's, let's just clarify, clarify it for the audience. Yeah, and she actually did good. So let's clarify it. What the, she's talking about the angle that is formed when you are in plank. 
Yes. The angle at mm-hmm. the wrist, the wrist. Is in okay. f- when you are in plank. So what she says is, this limits my depth and ability to balance my weight in some arm balances, i.e. Ekapadabhakasana. Yeah. I rarely hear wrist flexibility addressed related to arm balances or in yoga classes at all. And then she says, I should say I'm bottom heavy and need to get my weight further in front of my fingers. So that really yeah. puts... And, you know, I have the same experience being a little more bottom heavy, I never really thought about the fact that I have to like hoist hoist it all up and and it puts even sure. more pressure on the wrist. So she asked if I'm you have any suggestions. E- I am not confirming that either of you are bottom heavy. <laughs> well, even if you confirmed it, it wouldn't be a problem okay. for any of us. Of course. Okay, so first let's talk about, let's remove the word flexibility. Because I think that flexibility is a complex word that is largely associated with mm, soft tissue elasticity. And probably what governs a lot of wrist joint motion, and let's just call it range of motion instead of flexibility, is probably structural. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. So it's a component. I mean, it's going to be both. Mm-hmm. A, a range of motion is difficult to, I mean, I, I... So when you say structural, it's potentially bone structure. And this is one of these things that hopefully will come across or you can hit the listeners can hit the back 15 seconds a few times to try and get this. We have to understand the basic phenomenon of compression versus tension in a joint. Mm -hmm. So in any joint, you are in any motion, you are moving towards one side of the joint and you are moving away from the opposite side of the joint. So let's let's call it the top of the hand and the top of the wrist. When you are in plank, the top of the hand and the top of the wrist are at 90 degrees to each other, right? The top of the hand, when you are going from down dog to plank, you are moving the top of the hand and the top of the wrist closer together. Okay. Make sense? Yes. That side is the side of compression. Mm -hmm. The opposite side is the side of tension. Mm -hmm. Now, compression and tension is also a little complicated to unpack, okay? But what we have to figure out for Naomi, you or anyone else listening, is is there motion restriction on the side that the joint is moving towards or is there motion restriction on the side that the joint is moving away from? Mm -hmm. If there's motion restriction on the side of the joint that you're moving towards, it's more likely to be compression. Mm -hmm. It's stuff running into stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is less likely to change over time. It's less likely likely to be soft tissue. Yeah, it's less likely to be a, a changeable phenomenon. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in there and I don't pretend to be an expert in this. If it is stretch on the opposite side, that is more likely to be soft tissue. So if Naomi, if what you are feeling, let's say bakasana, right? Let's say if you are feeling stretch on the bottom side of the wrist or the palm side of the wrist, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but that is more likely to be the muscles and the tendon stretching, and that is potentially a changeable event. Right. If it's the top of the wrist 
where the back of the hand and the wrist meet each other, that is less likely to be a changeable event. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Mm -hmm. So what we have to figure out, she's saying that she, saying Naomi's saying that she has limited flexibility or limited range of motion. So if that restriction is on the back side of the hand, when you're trying to create a 90 degree angle there, then it's not likely to change. Mm -hmm. Is that clear? Totally. Okay. Yeah. So straight arm bakasanas are not going to happen. Might not happen. Not going to happen. Or yeah. it's going to happen, mm -hmm. but it ain't worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because it's going to significantly override the native amount of joint motion that's reasonable and permissible in that joint. And it's going to hurt. And it's not going to be worth it. So those are going to be bent elbow poses. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because when you keep the elbow bent, bakasana, ekapada bakasana, Parsha Bakasana, whole family, when you keep the elbow bent, it's easier to not hyperflex that joint. Right. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. Now I'm totally having um, insecurity around flexion and extension of the wrist. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. It's okay. It's good yeah, for you every okay. once in a while. Yeah. Keeps you on your toes. Yes. It I want to just, you know, venture off ever so slightly on a tangent here and say, I'm, I'm really so glad that this question came up because I told you a few weeks ago that I wanted to do a whole episode about not trying to fit your body into what you have been taught or have seen in photos as the quote unquote ideal yoga pose. You know, this is, this is a drum that Paul Grilly has been beating for, you know, 20 years. And I believe he's still out there on the road beating this drum and you've talked about it as well. And um, so I just want to say, and, you know, Paul, actually, you might find this interesting, like what Paul does a lot in his classes is examines this notion that the heels have to come down in down dog. Right. Mind or that dogs. the heels are going to come down ever in malasana, yeah. in yeah. a squat. And, and so I just, you know, exactly. They, they don't have to. This is actually a perfect example. So we were just talking about wrists. Okay. But we can look at the same thing with ankle joints briefly. And I am in that camp. And I show people this all the time in my trainings, right? Which is I show people my down dog. In my down dog, my heels do not come to the floor because my ankle joint doesn't dorsiflex beyond 90 degrees. And when I am in that pose, my calves are not stretching anymore. My Achilles tendon is not stretching anymore the top of my foot is abutting against the front of my ankle joint because I have really high arches. And so the side that I'm moving towards has limited motion. The side that I'm moving away from does not. Make sense? Yep. So for like malasana, again, that's another pose. My ankle joint does not flex, dorsiflex, more than 90 degrees. Right. And that has to do with the structure. Totally, 100%. Your skeleton. Yes. Yes. And or I think that's what I tell myself when I cry myself to sleep. Because... <laughs> Me too. With my back bends. But yeah, I mean, I think just recognizing that reality is such a great step to get to in your yoga practice. It's it's liberating and it can help you stop potentially doing harm to yourself. It's a step. It's a step. It's a step. This is a this is a really important thing that I think in the last couple of years, uh, 
many of us in the yoga world have become more aware of, which is when there's motion restriction or discomfort on the side of the joint you're moving towards, it's unlikely to be a positive situation. Yeah. And this is coming up a lot for people's hip joints. And we're becoming more aware that deep squats or deep hip flexion, when there's pain on the side of the joint that's flexing in the hip socket, it is, I don't want to say it's an injury or it's problematic, but I'll say in this context, it's not desirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Last question. Yes. From Adventure Calm, what are some tips for triangle? As a runner, I have tight hamstrings and hips. Modifying with a block helps, but I don't find comfort or grounding in this pose. Where can I play with hip and leg positioning or other alignment to experience triangle? I love that question. I literally cannot believe you're asking me this question. Why? It's so hard to answer in this context. I know, but I understand that this desire is no, to adventure, feel grounded. Adventure calm. I'm not calling you out. <laughs> that I, you have asked a good question, a really good question. It's really hard to answer this question, and you're about to hear me be as undiplomatic as I have ever been on Yoga Land. Okay, Are you ready for go it? Go for it. I'll talk about your tiny heels. My mom has a thing. When you were talking about that down dog story the whole time, I just wanted to say, are you sure it's not your tiny heels? My I, Okay, listeners, I do not have tiny heels. I have very masculine heels. He does. <laughs> My heels his, are amazing. But his mom claims that as a toddler, he had such tiny heels that, he, uh, that she couldn't find shoes for him, right? Yeah, I think this was my mom issue. Okay, anyways. So. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so now now that I have been taken down a notch because of the idiosyncrasies of my amazing mother, she is an amazing mother. She is amazing. And she's a nutter in the best way. Triangle pose is typically taught wrong, and it's been taught wrong by most disciplines for about 20 years. As long as it's existed. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the basic issue. It's that, okay, I don't want to say that it's taught wrong. I want to say that... And we can tag this into our last conversation, but it's really hard to try to get to wrap our heads around it. But I'm going to do my best here. It's hard without visuals. Yeah, I understand. So maybe sometime what we'll try and do is we'll try it. We'll do like a blog thing. And that's the other thing I wanted to say about these questions is they might encourage us to do some blog posts. So the problem as I and many other teachers see it is that the top hip, let's say we're doing triangle pose with the right foot forward. So your top hip is the left hip. The top hip in triangle pose is rotating upwards, okay? But the problem is that the top hip is often rotated upwards too early in the transition into the pose and too severely. And the opposite side of the opposite hip, so the back side of the right hip, we get compression in the head of the femur and the acetabulum, the socket that the ball sits in, and that tends to 
over time stress the sacroiliac region. And I'm not going to say sacroiliac joint. I'm going to say sacroiliac region because it might also be a lumbar situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So sort of to make that more, try and make that more tangible. My advice is when you do triangle pose, let's say the right foot is forward and you're in that sort of star-like position. Your arms are up, you're pressing down through the feet, you're lengthened up. A lot of times students are encouraged to open the hip as much as they can before they lower down in the pose. I would strongly discourage that. You want to take the left hip and not open it quite all the way to its maximum, but just gently turn the top hip open until it is just shy of its maximum. Now, the difficulty about this is it's much easier to speak in black and white terms. It's very difficult right now to say exactly how much should you turn your top hip open. What I'm saying is if you turn your top hip open to its maximum, it's probably going to get hung up in a way that you don't want it to hung up. So you want to open that left hip up, but not to its maximum. Does that make sure. sense? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then I think I think what you're getting at is a the instruction is often um, flatten your hips. You yes. Know? And you're saying you can and bring hips that can't flatten <clears throat> hip forward a little bit. Give yourself a little bit of a break because they're three dimensional. Yeah. Okay. But, but it's just a visual flat. I know. Yeah. But yeah, or the the hips between two panes of glass. Yes. Mm-hmm. I used to say it. I taught it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Some of our listeners, some of your listeners probably teach it. And I taught it for a long time. Mm-hmm. But this is one of the many things that I do not teach the way that I taught at one time. That left hip should actually rotate a tiny bit forward, especially in the transition into the pose. So instead of rolling that left hip all the way open, rotate it a little forward. And then when you come into the pose, make sure that you are hinging at the hip crease. So where the top of the thigh bone and the pelvis come together, not where the top of the pelvis and the waist come together. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And then when you get that right hand down on a block and... um. I would use a block. I still use a block. I don't I mean, need a block. I want to just throw. I want to throw throw something out else out there as an option. Put your hand on a chair. Yeah, or hand on a shin. I mean, I don't want to make. I don't want to make. But um, I'm just saying, if you're playing around at home and it's very un- and you have yet to find comfort in the pose, try placing your hand on the seat of a chair. Sure, absolutely. You know, the top hip. Once you're in the pose, turn the top hip up towards the ceiling. Until it stops, period. And don't then don't keep trying to turn it more. Don't force it. Because it's not going to turn more. Once you've turned that top hip open until it stops, any additional torque that you apply to turn it more, if it's not going anywhere, or any, God forbid, and this adjustment needs to stop, any additional torque that a teacher puts on you of rotating the top hip open is tire spinning. Yeah. Okay. And it can't rotate more. When the pelvis can't rotate more and you exert torque or your teacher exerts torque, then that force has to go somewhere. And it tends to go towards the denigration of the sacroiliac region. Yeah. And we see it time and time and time and time and time again in vinyasa yoga. And I'm not calling out vinyasa yoga. I, this is part of, this is what I teach. But triangle pose is just that thing where I actually find that adventure calm, especially if you have tighter hamstrings and adductors, 
Stop fussing with the top hip. Let it drop down a little bit more. Lengthen your bottom waist and engage your legs. And you're going to feel really, you're going to feel the stretch more in the legs and it is going to be less stressful in the back of the pelvis and in the lower back. It's going to be a much more efficient and accurate way of doing the pose. Just to add to this, do, have we done a pose notebook yet for triangle pose? No, we should. Well, let's do that one. So we'll, I'll let you guys know when that one goes up. We'll put it up soon. And whatever, what you do in triangle pose with regards to the pelvis, same thing for warrior two, same thing for half moon pose, same thing for Ardha Chandrasana. Great. Ardha Chandrasana is less of a concern because you can't get as much torque mm -hmm. on that hip because the back leg is elevated. Right. So, yeah. 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 This is a thing that, that, you know, some of you listening is going to be in contrast to an existing belief system. And I just think as yoga teachers and yoga practitioners, that that is healthy, that is sound, and we should continue to question the beliefs that we've, that we've held for periods of time. And this is something that is changing. It's changing the modern era of yoga in terms of how most senior teachers are teaching this pose. Yep. It's not as uh, aggressively oriented towards turning the top hip open because it doesn't work. Right, right. Great. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening and thanks for your questions. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 36. And I'm going to dig up some triangle related sequences that you can practice, some arm balancing sequences that you can practice related to this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to share it on social media. That's so helpful. And uh, leave me a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, enjoy your practice.